Thank you for listening to this message from the pulpit of New Grace Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. We hope the message you are about to hear is a blessing to you and your family. We're going to jump right back in to Nehemiah. Uh, and as we come to Nehemiah chapter 7, we're, we're kind of in a, a different uh, part, uh, a different part of uh, the book. At the end of uh, Nehemiah chapter 6, the, the wall is finished. And of course, God had sent Nehemiah uh, back from uh, Babylon, back from Persia, for the specific instruction, the specific purpose of rebuilding the wall. And so Nehemiah has gone back. He's faced a lot of obstacles, a lot of opposition from without, a lot of opposition from within, uh, just a lot of struggles he's dealt with. But the wall is finished, and it, it's finished in record time 52 days. The wall around the city of Jerusalem is completely rebuilt. The gates are put back in, and the, 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 the doors are put back in. And as I've been studying this, I've kind of looked at some different maps and some different uh, designs about the city of Jerusalem at this time. And this wasn't like he six-foot privacy fence around your backyard. Doing that in 52 days is taking a long time. Uh, this is hundreds of miles of many times... 15 or feet or higher walls, the, and it had over 30 gates in it. It had the Dung Gate, the, the, the Peace Gate, the Camel Gate. It had all these different gates that they had put into the wall. And so getting the people together, because remember, when Babylon invaded over uh, several hundred years ago, they took every able-bodied person with them. Now, people had been born in Jerusalem at this time that were able-bodied, uh, and, but they, they were, their, their population is dwindled, their skill set is down, they're facing all kinds of opposition, but they are able to finish the, the, the wall in 52 days by the end of chapter number 6. So you would think chapter 7 would be one verse and it would be, and they lived happily ever after. But that's not what happens. There's a chapter 7, a chapter 8, a chapter 9, a chapter 10, a chapter 11, a chapter 13. There's many more chapters after the work is finished. Uh, it has seven more chapters. Now, this, the fact that after the wall is finished, there's seven more chapters teaches us a, a pretty valuable lesson. God is not only concerned with building something, but he's concerned with protecting what it is that he has built. And that's what, that's what chapter 7 is all about. We're moving from getting the work done, getting the, the mission accomplished, to we're going to make sure that the, the work that God has finished stays finished. That the wall that God used us to build stays up. That we protect what God has given us throughout history. Churches, colleges, ministries that had, had started out serving God, passionate for God, seeing people saved for the glory of God, they've, they've fallen. Some of them have just ceased to exist. They've stopped doing what God's called them to do. Some of them fall, fell into sin or, or, or uh, bad theology and false teaching. And so what God started and what God built didn't keep going for God. They used to boldly proclaim the gospel, used to see people come to Christ for salvation, but now the doors are closed. Warren Worsby says this, says, Every Christian ministry 
is one generation away from destruction. And God's people must be on guard. The work that is starting in Nehemiah chapter 7 is just as important, if not more important, than the work that has been finished by the end of chapter number 6. See, God doesn't call us just to start things and build things for His glory, but He wants us to protect what He has given us. He wants us to continue doing the work that He's called us to do. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 13, the Bible says, Therefore take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to resist in the evil day, and having done all, stand. God doesn't want us to retreat. God doesn't want us to just start these big projects, build these big things, and say, okay, we've done the job, now let's go on to the next thing. We need to make sure that what God has used us to build stays doing what God's called us to do. So after they're done building what God had called them to build, God wants them to stand and to protect what he has done through them to keep the enemy from destroying it. Second John chapter verse 8, the Bible says, Watch yourselves so that you do not lose those things for which we have worked, but that we will receive a full reward. It is just as important to protect what God has given us as it is to build new things for His honor and for His glory. So let's start reading in Nehemiah chapter 7. We're going to start reading in verse number 1. Now it came to pass, when the wall was built, and I had set up the doors and the porters and the singers and the Levites were appointed, that I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the ruler of the palace, charge over Jerusalem, for he was a faithful man and feared God above many. And I said unto them, Let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun be hot, and while they stand by, let them shut the doors and bar them, and appoint watches of the inhabitants of Jerusalem, every one in his watch, and every one to be over against his house. Now the city was large and great, but the people were few therein, and the houses were not builded. And my God put into mine heart to gather together the nobles and the rulers of the people that they might be reckoned by genealogy. And I found a register of the genealogy of came up at the first and found written therein. So what, what we see is happening here is the, the wall is finished. 52 days, incredible victory, incredible work that God has used Nehemiah and the people in Jerusalem to accomplish. The wall is finished but the work is just starting. The work that God has called him to do is not finished yet. The city has a wall around it, but he says, you know, the, the wall is finished, the city's huge, but there's, there's not many people in there. The people who were left in Jerusalem or those who had returned from captivity to Jerusalem hadn't come back to the capital. They'd been... Uh, of course, they're, they're scared to go back. They're, they're going elsewhere. So he goes, you know, we got this wall finished. We got this huge city, but there's not a lot of people in it. And the people that were there, they didn't have their houses built. So there was still work to finish. Now, the next 60 verses in chapter 7 is a list of names and, and genealogies. And we're not going to go through it uh, for the simple fact that I can't pronounce most of them. 
uh, and I don't want to seem foolish up here, but there are uh, some some pretty great names in there. If you are ever looking for, uh, you know, you want to name your children one day, there's some great names in here. There's a name, Nebo. So if you ever want to, you know, some of you, you know, you may want to name, a, try to get your grandkids or your kids, say, hey, name your, your, your son Nebo, or there's Huzzah. You know, can you imagine having a kid named Huzzah? You know, what's his name? Huzzah! So there are some cool names in there, but we're not going to look at them. So we're going to skip all the way down to verse number 66 of chapter number 7. So you're probably going to have to turn a page if you are like me and have giant print because you're blind. Uh, so chapter uh, 7, verse 66. The whole congregation together was 40 and 2,303 score. Besides their manservants and their maidservants, in whom there were 7,330 and seven. And they had 240 and five singing men and singing women. Their horses, 730 and six. Their mules, 245. Their camels, 430 and five. 6,720 asses. And some of the chief of the fathers gave unto them the work. The Trishada gave to the treasure a thousand uh, drams of gold, fifty basins, five hundred and thirty priests' garment, and some of the chief of the fathers gave to the treasure of the work twenty thousand drams of gold and two thousand and two hundred pounds of silver, and that which is the rest of the people gave was twenty thousand drams of gold and two thousand pounds of silver and threescore and seven priests' garment. So the priests and the Levites and the porters and the singers and some of the people and the Nephilims and all Israel dwelt in their cities. And when the seventh month came, the children of Israel were in their cities. Now, we believe here that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and it's good for us. It's, it's profitable. It's there for our correction, for our guidance. Uh, for our direction, and besides, e- even even the 60 verses we skipped that list just the, the people who came back from Jerusalem, but then these verses that it's just, it's not listing names, it's listing items people had given to the work of God and, and, and what was used to help keep the work going. So we understand and we believe that all Scripture is there for our growth. So I want to see three chapters, uh, three things from this chapter that protecting what God has given us requires us to do, requires us to to step forward and and be a part of. And so it's protecting what God has given us, what it needs. Here's the first thing that uh, we need if we're going to protect what God has given us. Number one, it requires godly leaders, mainly, and look, so you're sitting here and you're thinking, well, I'm not a, I'm not a pastor, I'm not a deacon, I'm not a leader, I, can, I don't got to be godly, no, no, no. Godly leaders is all of us. God has called all of us to lead somebody, so it requires godly people. The first thing Nehemiah does after he completes the wall and gets the doors up and gets everything finished is he finds key people to lead. So the first thing we want to see is who was chosen to lead. Look again at verse number 2 of chapter 7. It says, Now it came to pass when the wall was built that I set up the doors and the porters and the singers and the Levites were appointed. Verse 2, That I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the ruler of the palace, charge over Jerusalem. So according to verse 2, one of the men he chose was Hanani, which he calls his brother. Now, 
The Greek word used here is very short. It's the word ak. Now, it can mean a literal brother, his sibling. Uh, but it usually refers to a close relationship. And this isn't the first time we've met Hanani. He is the one that we met in verse number in chapter 1, where Nehemiah is in Persia. He's in Shushan the palace. He's serving the king. He's got a pretty good job. He's the, the, the cupbearer of the king, so he's eating the best food. He's drinking the best drink. He's taken care of. He's, he's being paid well to do this job to make sure no one kills the king. And Hanani comes back from Jerusalem, and he calls him his brother in that chapter as well. And he's the one that tells Nehemiah, hey man, the, the people are struggling. The walls are broken down. The people are, are poor. They're, unde- they're, they're not defended. They're not worshiping. It's, just, it's a mess in Jerusalem. Now in that chapter, he's called his brethren or one of his relatives. Now, we don't really know if they are related or not. There's no genealogy in the Bible that lists Nehemiah's genealogy that puts Hanani in it. So we don't know if they're related. We don't know if they just grew up together and they're very close friends. But it really doesn't matter. What matters is Nehemiah knows him intimately. He knows his heart. He knows what his desire is. He knows that he loves God and he's concerned about God's people. He saw the need in Jerusalem and traveled back to Babylon to share that need with Nehemiah because he knew Nehemiah was in a position that he could actually do something about it. So he has proven that he can be trusted. He has proven he has a burden for God's people. And that's what God wants all of us to have. Just a love for God and a burden to see His people flourish and see His people be protected and see God's work continue. Now we also know He was a civil leader in Jerusalem. He was a a politician. But, you know, when we talk about politicians now, uh, you you know how you know a politician's lying? He's talking. You know, you can't, there's, there's, no, there's no really politician that, that I, I know of uh, that you can look at and say, man, that guy, he doesn't care about himself. He, he just wants to help his constituents. He wants to make sure the people that he's been elected by are getting the best life they can get and they're, they're being taken care of. Every politician at some point has, they're just looking out for number one. They're looking out for themselves. They're trying to further their own agendas. Their own, uh, trying to pad their own pockets. But Hanani was a politician who genu- genuinely cared about the people. He cared about the people in Jerusalem. Now, the second man chosen was Hananiah. Now, Hananiah was a military leader. He was in charge of Jerusalem's defense. And so he was, help, he was put in charge because he could help make sure that the wall stayed protected. So we who was chosen. Second thing, why were they chosen? Now, it doesn't tell us why uh, Hanani was chosen, except that he was a close, trusted ally. But again, in verse 2, we see why he chose Hananiah. Uh, so look at verse number 2. It says, Hananiah, the ruler of the palace, charged of Jerusalem, for he was a faithful man and feared God above many. Now, that phrase, feared God above many, uh, means that he, he feared God over what people thought. He cared more about what God wanted 
and what God said than what people said or what culture said. He believed, God, this is, what, this is your word. This is what's important to you. And it doesn't matter what, what the, the political leaders of the day, doesn't matter what society of the day, doesn't matter what the culture of the day says. This is what you said is right. This is what you said we're going to do. So, God, I'm going to obey you over anyone else. Even if it makes me unpopular, even if it gets me in trouble with the, the ruling party, even if it gets me in trouble with the Persian Empire, God, you have said it, I'm going to obey you over everybody else. So he loved God and had the desire to serve God. That couldn't be said about past leaders in Israel. That couldn't be said about the opponents that Nehemiah faced inside the wall and outside the wall All they cared about was themselves. If this wall gets built, it's going to hurt our our paychecks. If this wall gets built, we're not going to be able to take advantage of people anymore. So they didn't care about God's people. They cared about themselves. This is a criteria that God uses when He chooses people to protect His work. They love Him and they want to serve Him over anyone else. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, we see God sending the man of God, the the prophet, to David's uh, father's house, to Jesse's house, to choose the new king over Israel because Saul had rejected God. Saul had, had disobeyed God and so God rejected Saul as king and he said, he said I'm going to choose a new king. So he goes down uh, to, to Samuel, goes down uh, to Jesse's house because that's where God sent him to. And Jesse, he goes to Jesse and says, hey, God sent me here and told me that one of your sons is going to be the next king of Israel. So of course, Jesse, he's ecstatic and he brings out the oldest son and this guy, he's just like Saul. He's tall. Man, he's striking. You know, he's, a, he's like an Instagram influencer. He's got the, the look. He's kind of beefcake. And man, that's everybody, you look at him and man, that's a man's man. And he's the obvious choice in man's eye to be the next king. But God rejects him. Rejects every single one of, Des, of Jesse's sons. Look what it says in chapter 16, verse 7. It says, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees, for man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. David, in man's eyes, wasn't the logical choice. David was so insignificant that Jesse forgot about him. Brings all his sons in for Samuel to see, and Samuel goes down the line of every son, and God rejects every single one of them. Finally, Samuel looks at Jesse and says, is this all your boys? you have another kid? And Jesse goes, oh, you know what? I do have one more. I got, I got David, but he did, you know, he's, he's this little runt. He's a little short kid. He's out in the field. He's, it can't be him. But David, Jesse uh, goes and gets him. Samuel has him bring him to him, and as soon as David walks in, God says, that's the man doesn't make any sense. David's, he's young. He's, the Bible says, ruddy in appearance, which means he's kind of red-faced and freckled, so he looks like a dirty, red-headed stepchild. No one would pick David. But God says, that's the man I want. Why? Because David's heart wanted to serve God. David's heart wanted to please God. And that's what God's looking for in people who are going to protect what God has given. If we are going to protect what God's given us, we need godly, faithful people to stand in the gap. Because Warren Worsby is right. 
every work of God is one generation away from being lost. Or one generation away from being destroyed. Alexander Hamilton said the same thing about the government. He said the aim of every political constitution is or ought to be first to obtain for rulers men who possess must, most wisdom to discern and most virtue to pursue the common good of society and in the next place to take the most effectual precautions to keep them virtuous. Even Alexander Hamilton, when looking at the government they were trying to establish, what you know, our American government said, look, first of all, we need godly, we need good men who want to protect what's going on, but then we need those men to, to desire to keep that, but train the next generation to do the same thing. George Almsen, he was a, a general, but he said the same thing about business. He says, if our free enterprise system is to prove its superiority, our greatest hope lies in finding and developing young men and women with talents for leadership. Private enterprise can only be as strong as the men and women who run our businesses. Our future survival depends on the success of our programs of leadership development, not only in business, but also in every area of our national life. This, then, must be our objective. Our program for leadership development must succeed. Look, if political and business leaders understand we're only going to last as long as the people we train to take our place. How can we miss it as we have, we have something greater than any government could ever offer. We have something greater than any, any business opportunity. We have the truth of eternity. We have the gospel of Jesus Christ, the truth that Jesus came as a sinless Son of God, lived a perfect life, died in our place and rose again to redeem us, gives us the Holy Spirit to lead us, to guide us, to direct us, and has given us the charge to give that truth and that gospel to the entire world. That is more important than any business or any government ever could have. And these people and all these institutions say, look, we've got to train the next generation to do what we're doing. How can we miss it and say, well, you know what? It doesn't matter. We, we've done what we can do. Let the next generation take it. No, we've got to train the next generation to stand in the gap for God just like we do. So Nehemiah, he began by choosing people that would stand to God, stand for God. So we need to ask ourselves a few questions regarding this truth. Are we seeking to develop godliness and character in our own lives so God can use us? God has given us everyone and everything we need to build and protect His work for His glory. So we have to ask ourselves, are we drawing closer to God daily so we can be the men and women that God wants to use and God can use. But then we got to say, are we doing anything to train the next generation to do the same thing? See, the people Nehemiah chose weren't just qualified to do the work. They were willing to do the work. And what Nehemiah was asking to do, it wasn't easy. He, they knew they were going to face opposition. They knew they were going to face struggles and burdens. But they were willing to do it anyway. Are we willing to stand in the gap? And are we training the next generation to protect God's work and kingdom on earth? Again, we're one generation from being gone. From losing everything God has built. 
training our kids, training our teenagers is vital to the work of God, continuing not just here at New Grace, but continuing throughout the world. Protecting God's work requires the right people who are willing to stand. And second thing, protecting God's work, number two, requires focusing, focusing on people. Now, this second chapter of, this, uh, chapter of Nehemiah, uh, it's the second chapter in the book of Nehemiah that's mostly a list of names. Now, it tells how they helped with the project, but it, it tells something more about the ministry protecting what God has done. The people listed in this chapter are divided up into eight different categories. It's the original leaders that came with Nehemiah. Uh, it's the, the Jewish laymen that lived there and helped the work on the wall. He lists the priests that led the worship of Israel. Uh, he talks about the Levites and lists the Levites that did the work of the ministry. He lists the singers that were there to lead worship, the gatekeepers that were set up to protect the, the temple servants that kept everything running. He lists the descendants of Solomon and those whose uh, ancestry was questionable. And look, we could spend weeks going through this list and looking at the people and what it is they did and what this means. But instead of doing that, I want to just look at the main lesson that God's trying to teach us here in this chapter. People are important to God. God did not need these people to build a wall. He could have built it himself. But people are important to God. All kinds of people are important to God. In this list, you've got laymen, you've got priests, you've got ministry workers, you've got singers, you've got people that they list and they're like, we don't even, we don't even know if they're truly Jewish. They're, their ancestry is, is questionable. But God used them, and God loves every single one of them. God cares about people. When God put forth the plan of salvation, He didn't send angels to put it into motion. He used people. He chose people to bring about the plan of salvation. See, ministry is not about bricks and mortar. It's about people. God cares about people. So the churches that God so churches that God uses are those that use the church to build his people, not people to build the church. God cares about people. So if we're going to protect what God's given us, it requires godly people. It requires focusing on and loving people. And thirdly, here's what we're going to spend a little bit more time on. It requires sacrifice. Back in chapter 7, in the verses 66 through 73, the last kind of section of that chapter, he's listed all the people and what they did. He's listed the leaders he put in place. And then he, he starts naming the things that people gave to get the wall built, but also make sure the wall stayed where it needed to be. It took sacrifice to get the wall built. And it was going to take sacrifice to make sure that it stayed where God had put it. God has always provided for His work on earth through the sacrifice of His people. 
when Israel was wandering in the wilderness and God gave them the tabernacle, the temple, uh, the tabernacle would be built, the, the movable temple that they would take with them. He gave Moses a list of all the things they needed. And then Moses went to the people of Israel, said, here's what we need. And the people sacrificially gave to make sure the tabernacle was built. They gave gold, they gave silver, they gave the animals needed to make sure the tabernacle was built. And once it was built, God commanded Israel to bring the tithe to the temple to provide care. Now here's the thing. God doesn't need to do this. The Bible says God owns the cattle on a thousand hill and the gold in every mine. When Israel was in the wilderness and they needed food, God gave them food from heaven. Every morning they would wake up and they'd go out of their tent and there's, there's the manna outside for them. You know, the Bible describes it as little, little wafers of honey. I think of it as honey, honey, honeycomb cereal. I love me some honeycomb cereal. So every morning they'd get out and they'd get to eat honeycomb cereal for breakfast. And look, I love honeycomb, but 40 years of honeycomb breakfast, you know, lunch and dinner is going to get a little old. But if, that's all, if God made it rain honeycomb every day, I'm not going to complain about it. I'm going to praise God for it. So God gave them food from nothing in the wilderness. God gave them water from a rock in the wilderness. So God doesn't need us to give to get the work done. God could have spoken the tabernacle into existence. God could have spoken and let the wall be built around Israel because God spoke and everything came into existence. So God doesn't ask us to give because He needs our stuff. God asks us to sacrifice for His kingdom, not for His benefit, but for our benefit. Matthew 6 Jesus speaking here says, Do not store for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroys, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy, and where thieves do not break in nor steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. See, here's what Jesus is telling us. Storing treasure on earth isn't wrong. It's stupid. We're, we're putting our investment in the wrong place. The issue isn't storing treasure, it's where you store treasure. See, Jesus doesn't say, don't store up treasure at all because treasure is wicked and treasure is the, the, you know, the love of, you know, money is the root of all evil because money is not the root of all evil. The love of money is the root of all evil. So Jesus doesn't say, don't store up treasure at all. He goes, don't store up treasure on earth. Store it up in heaven. If you store it on earth, it's going to go away. You know, uh, several people years ago, or, you know, not too long ago, uh, but last year and year, you know, people made a killing on, you know, cryptocurrency. And there's all kinds of them. There's Bitcoin, Dogecoin, Elon coin. I don't know. There's too much, there's too much cryptocurrency. But people would invest and they would make a, a killing. But then, not too long ago, the crypto market crashed. And all those people who had all that money, guess what they didn't have anymore? All that money. And now people are investing in NFTs. They are, they are spending real money to buy a digital picture that you can't even, I don't understand it, but they're investing in it and they're making money on it. And some of them are making a lot of money and some of them are losing a lot of money. You put money in the stock market, look, you may have a, a great day. Stock market may shoot up and you make a killing, but it could go down and you can lose everything. You, nothing on this earth is secure. 
So you don't invest in the stock market. You take all your cash and you stuff it under your mattress. Probably not the best idea because what are you going to do when your house burns down? What do you do when someone breaks in and flips your mattress and says, hey, look, all this cash. Nothing on earth is secure. So Jesus doesn't say don't store up treasure. He says just don't store it up on earth. Store it up where it can matter, where it will never be taken away. Store your treasure in, in heaven. So the issue isn't storing treasure, but where you store your treasure. So when we sacrifice to build God's work, to maintain God's work and build His kingdom, we are investing in the right place. Treasures on earth don't last. Treasures in heaven last for eternity. So when God asks us to sacrifice, it's really not a sacrifice because it's, it's for our good. It's for our benefit. It's for our joy. Sacrifice is good for other people, but the ultimate good is for us. And throughout Scripture, throughout history, God has used His people to build and maintain His work. And He has promised to keep those people, to provide for those people, to bless those people that obey His command of sacrifice. Malachi 3, chapter, 10, or chapter 3, verse 10. It says, bring all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing that there will, be, there will not be room enough to receive it, I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes so that it will not destroy the fruit of your ground and the vines in your field will not fare, fail to bear fruit, says the Lord of hosts. This is a challenge and a promise that God has given us. He says, if you test my faithfulness, I will prove myself faithful every single time. Now, this is not a promise that you're going to get riches if you plant a seed of faith. You know, I'm not going to sit here and say, hey, if you, if you give me $100, then God's going to bless you with $10,000. I'm not going to say, look, if you want to try it, we'll try it. That's not how it works. But if you want to give me 100 bucks, I'm not going to turn you away. Uh, but it's not a, a seed faith that if you give God 100 bucks, he'll, he'll multiply it tenfold. It's not a promise of, of riches or wealth, but it is a promise. God says, if you're faithful to give to me 10%, because here's the thing God tells us in Scripture, and we're going to see this in a couple weeks. I'm, I'm gearing up for something that y'all aren't going to be happy about, but we've got to do it anyway. So this is a, God says, everything you have is mine. I've given it all to you, every single bit. Whatever you have in your bank account, it's not yours, it's God's. Whatever you have at your house, it's not yours, it's God's. Every car we own, every house we own, every item of clothing we own, every piece of food we own, everything God we have was given to us by God, and it is God's. And God says, look, I'm going to make you, I'm going to let you keep 90% of it, and I just ask you to give 10% back to my kingdom as a, a test. That I'm going to do more for you with the 90% than you could do with the 100% on your own. It's a promise not to bless us and not to give us riches beyond our wildest dreams, but it's a promise to provide for us, to meet every single need we have. It's a promise to rebuke the devourer. Say, what's that mean? It's a promise to make your stuff last longer. 
to make your, 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 your everything we have go a little bit further because we are trusting God with, with what he's given us. To make the 90% he, he, he gives us to keep go further than the 100% if we kept it for ourselves. Now, in human mindset, that makes no sense whatsoever. If a financial advisor who's not a godly person, not a Christian, got up and said, you, you cheat 90% of your paycheck, you give me 10% of your paycheck, and uh, I'll make your, your car last longer. Makes no sense to us. We can do more with the 100%. And look, I'm not saying give me the 10%, because none of the, the, it doesn't come to me. It goes to God's kingdom. But God says, look, you, you trust me and give me 10% of everything I bless you with, and I, I promise I'm going to prove myself faithful to you I'm going to provide for you, make everything last longer for you, because God's kingdom works backwards from ours. You know, God says, if you want to be first, be last. If you want to be exalted, you've got to be abased. If you want to get, you have to give. Now, if your motive of giving is to get, I uh, hate to break it to you, but that's not going to work. God doesn't bless us. He blesses the heart and the motive behind the heart. If your motive is to be faithful to Him, to build and maintain His kingdom for His honor and for His glory, and God says, I'll take care of you. I'll provide for you. I'll t- t- do everything that you need. See, the people in Israel, they gave everything to see the wall get built. How foolish would it have been to sacrifice and give and risk to make sure the wall was finished, to then say, you know what, I don't care what happens to it now. It can, it can be destroyed, who cares? We have to sacrifice to build and sacrifice to keep. God asks us to sacrifice because He sacrificed more than we could ever imagine for us. God left the glory of heaven, was born to a virgin, Deity wrapped in humanity came to us, lived a perfect life that we never could have lived, died in our place, absorbed the wrath of God for our sins. He took the punishment we should have taken, was buried and rose again three days later to redeem us to God the Father. He gave up everything for us. So it isn't much for us to... Give for Him. Took sacrifice to build the wall. And it was going to take sacrifice to keep it. Same is true for today. It took sacrifice to get where we are. It's going to take sacrifice to keep it and to grow it. See, the work that God called Nehemiah to do, it wasn't finished at the end of chapter 6. It was just beginning. God doesn't want us to build something for Him, to start something for Him, just to let it be destroyed. He wants us to build and to maintain everything for His glory. And that's going to take godly people. It's going to take focusing not just on stuff, but focusing on on people, not just projects. And it's going to take sacrifice. Are we willing to do what's necessary to keep and grow the ministry of God. Heavenly Father. Thank you for listening to this message from New Grace Baptist Church. For more information about New Grace, check out our website at www.reachingroanoke.com.